Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Nature Photographer podcast. I'm Dawn Wilson, and I am joined tonight with Ron Hayes and Jason Loftus from Wild and Exposed, our partner producers on this podcast, as well as Sarah Marino, who will be talking with us about her beautiful, intimate landscapes and explain what that means. So welcome, Sarah. Yeah, it's so fantastic to be here with the three of you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, welcome. I've if I haven't told you before, I've admired your work for a while, and I, there was a couple of years ago, I was having my website reviewed by Alan Mirabayashi, who from Photo Shelter, and he had asked me, he's like, well, tell me a couple of photographers that you admire, and, you know, I mentioned a couple of others that are similar to my work, One, and I do it most, I photograph mostly wildlife. And I brought mentioned your name. He's like, why? He said, your work's so different than hers. And I said, well, that's just it. I, I just admire what she does. And I can't do that. I don't have that eye for those intimate details. So tell us a little bit about what your style is and you know, to explain how that kind of came to be. Well, I don't have the patience for wildlife. So I'd say that's probably a place where a lot of my style derives from is that I just generally, like, I don't like staying put. So a lot of the traditional advice that you get about nature photography or landscape photography in particular is that you arrive to a place, you photograph it from the same spot during the best light, and then when the best light is done, you go home and rest. And then you do the same thing at sunset. And just generally, I feel so much more enthusiasm for photography than can be encapsulated in 20 minutes around sunrise and 20 minutes after sunset. So I consider my own photography to be what I describe as kind of photography by wandering around, just slowing down, being curious, seeing what catches my eye, and then just spending time working with those little details that fascinate me in nature. So by the very nature of my interests, which are uh, like range from little tiny lichen to water ripples to collection of leaves on the ground to collections of trees, and then sometimes ground landscapes, like those are all things that you can photograph in all different kinds of light. So generally, uh, that's, I think, where my style derives from is just I have a lot of curiosity and I like wandering around and I like working with all different kinds of light. And that comes together to create a photographic portfolio that's just generally more focused on the small scenes in nature, even though I still think I can pull together a grand landscape pretty well sometimes. Yeah, you definitely have some moody grand landscapes. And I think that's one of the things that seems like you like cloudy days. Uh, I've talked about this with friends too, like the tendency of photograph of wanting to photograph fall colors uh, with a blazing pink sky. It's like, I'd rather have dark, stormy blue clouds. Um, so I think it's just, I think the general thing that I would say underpins all of my photographer pra photographic practice is just an open-mindedness. So that means that stormy skies are just as good as colorful skies and clear skies can work as well too. Uh, being open-minded to all different kinds of light, all different kinds of conditions and finding opportunities pretty much with whatever nature is presenting. The smaller landscapes, it's kind of like the wildlife equivalent of photographing pronghorn antelope. It's a little bit more difficult to make an interesting shot and developing that eye for what is going to be eye appealing to people when they have it on their wall 
with those smaller landscapes, I think has got to be something that took some time. Is that where you started or is that just kind of where you have matured to? Well, when I look at my early photography, I, so some things that you'll see in my photographic portfolio would be things like photographs of plants, uh, lots of photographs of trees, photographs of things like curled mud and mud ripples, mud cracks, that kind of thing. So when I look at my early photographs that I took 13, 14 years ago, those themes are all still there. So that's actually, I think, where I started. That's where my interest lied to begin with, was those little smaller details in nature. And then I became part of an online photographic community where all of the attention went to the big, bold, grand landscapes. And I think like is something that's a kind of a natural tendency when you start getting the external validation of like, oh, a lot of people like my work. That caused me to turn more to the things that were getting more attention, which was the grand landscapes. And I didn't, I just had like four or five years of complete dissatisfaction with my work because I was pursuing that type of nature photography, the big, grand, epic, expansive landscapes under really colorful light when that isn't actually where my interests lied. So I've, I consider those early tendencies and early instincts to be what I've returned to. And I've just improved my skills over the last couple of years uh, so that it wasn't necessarily uh, something that I found as an external, it was more listening to myself and trusting my own instincts and then following those instincts uh, and then working through that type of photography instead of focusing, I think, on what a lot of people define as landscape photography. I still consider everything that I do to be landscape photography. It just looks a little bit different than a lot of the, of what people, other people call landscape photography. No, I have a, a deep appreciation for what you do because that's kind of, it's the walking along the small things that you see on the ground or even just that, you know, sagebrush that you can just see into the shadows and light kind of develop the scene. I grew up um, in Thermopolis, Wyoming, which is the world's largest mineral hot spring actually is in Thermopolis. It's not in Yellowstone and the mosses and lichens and that you see in the water, you throw a polarizer on and you can, you can just get some amazing small scenes, but I never thought of, you know, identifying it as I just thought I was kind of a minimalist and, <laughs> but the, the patterns in those mosses is, is really eye catching to me. And, and that's the way, you know, even some of your ripple shots, it, it's amazing how something that simple that you might walk past on a daily basis can be, you know, as appealing as what you've made it. Yeah. It sounds like just based on what you said, I have another place to, to visit. <laughs> just that hot spring yeah. sounds fantastic. Um, I have yeah, a question for you. You said that, that what I'm talking about is a lot like photographing pronghorn antelope. What did you mean by that? Well, just developing the eye for what makes an interesting pronghorn image, because they're very, they're very hard to make an appealing shot of. And, and like I said, like I just said, most people walk by a lot of the things that you see and, and don't see them at all. And I think that's what makes your work special is that your, your eye catches those, catches the potential of, you know, those ripples in the, in the water, or those mud cracks and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I actually think that it's one of the hallmarks of being a, a happier photographer. Uh, my, the, the type of approach that I'm taking of where you can find 
photographs in pretty much any landscape. You can find things to work with in pretty much any lighting conditions that seeing mm -hmm. the world as an expansive place full of opportunity, I think presents a, a much greater, uh, it presents a range of opportunities that can just, I think, be a lot more fulfilling than just thinking about landscape photography in particular as something that you do for 20 minutes around sunrise and 20 minutes around sunset. And then when things don't work out, you feel like an entire trip is ruined. Uh, whereas like I just, I spent eight weeks in Death Valley. Uh, we have an RV and we worked from the campground in uh, Furnace Creek there. And I, I think out of the eight weeks that we were there, we had maybe five or six days of interesting conditions. We had snow one day, which was absolutely fantastic. Like photographing Death Valley Joshua trees in the snow was a fantastic, wonderful experience. And then we had a couple of days of uh, interesting clouds ranging from cloudy, interesting stormy textures to colorful. And then the rest of that eight week period was really completely clear skies, like not a single cloud in the sky. And that's the type of situation where I think a lot of landscape photographers would either say like, this was a huge waste of time. I was really unhappy. This, I, I should have left and gone somewhere else. And I, my husband, who's also a nature photographer, he and I, I think both feel like we created some of our best work in those conditions. And I think it's because we both bring a pretty expansive view. Uh, the same thing that I've been talking about around mm -hmm. their opportunities in any light, opportunities with any subjects in any landscape. Uh, so that even <laughs> with seven weeks of clear skies, you can still walk away feeling like it was productive and that I could be creative and really connect with the landscape. Do you, when you're taking, when you're looking at a landscape, do you, or at a scene, do you compose while you're out in the field or do you say, hey, I, I love this the look of these rocks, the color of the rocks, the details that's in here, but I will go back home and on the computer then kind of work with that composition around it or patterns within it. Um, this is one of the most common questions I get about my work. Like, are you taking a big scene and then you're cropping it down when once you get home? And 99% of my photography, whether or not like the only reason I crop is my lens wasn't long enough. I would say that is pretty much the only reason, or I have a, a horizon that wasn't level. But generally, the the small scenes that you see in my portfolio of work. So let's say that it's a collection of leaves on the ground, uh, maybe floating in a pond with some pretty water. Uh, the way that it's presented on my website is generally exactly how I framed it up in the field. So I'm seeing the opportunity. I'm getting out a lens that's allows me to zoom in on that composition. I'm being very precise. Once I have an the the ideation and the creativity phase is I'm all over the place trying lots of different things. And then once I have an idea in mind that I want to work with, I turn much more to precision. And then I'm framing it up exactly as you see it on my website. So um, again, if I don't have a long enough lens, then that's the only time that I'm going to be cropping or trying out some different alternatives. But I feel like that that's one of the, the most important lessons to learn with the type of photography that we're talking about is that details matter. So being precise in the field can really elevate your work from, um, from, from good to, I think, to more of a, a higher level of excellence. So it doesn't mean that you have to be precise throughout the entire process. There's still a lot of room for creativity and experimentation. But once I see something that I'm interested in, I'm going to frame it up 
get the files that I need. So I do a lot of focus stacking. Um, and so I'll prepare all those files and then assemble them once I get home. But the, I'm framing it up exactly as you see the final result. And what kind of, you mentioned lenses. What are some of the lenses that you use for this type of work? Uh, so that's another common misperception is I think a lot of people are like, oh, intimate landscapes equals telephoto. Like you only, for this kind of photography, you only use a telephoto lens. Uh, well, my current lens setup is I have a 15 to 35 and then a 24 to 105, 100 millimeter macro, and then a 100 to 500 with a 1.4 X teleconverter. And then uh, my husband, Ron, just got a, one of Canon's new lightweight 800 millimeters. And I just used that, the 800 plus the 1.4 teleconverter to photograph sand dunes. Um, so from 15 millimeters all the way, or 14, actually my new lens is 14, all the way to 500 plus. Um, and I find things to photograph, small scenes in nature to photograph at every single one of those focal lengths. Like a wide angle lens can be fantastic for some of this stuff because if you face it down, like all the exaggerated the lines that you get with a, an expansive grand landscape, you'll, you'll get with little scenes too. So if you have lots of interesting sand ripples right in front of you, facing a 14 millimeter lens down towards the ground, you get all sorts of exaggerated lines, which can uh, take something that looks looks kind of interesting and then turn it into a completely strange abstract where optical illusion where you're not quite sure what's up or what's down what you're looking around what you're actually looking at and that's the benefit of using a 14 millimeter lens really close to a tiny subject out in nature yeah you know it's interesting i it kind of surprises me that people would would ask that question because in my from my perspective looking through your page in your work, it's it actually seems very clear to me that you have a very good eye, and that I don't think these are happy little accidents. You know what I mean? It's like you have to you've had to have developed an eye for this, and maybe that was my next question: is you know, do you feel like this just came naturally to you, or do you feel like you had to work hard to develop this kind of an eye, or where where do you at on that? Um, I think that it the interest and curiosity comes naturally. Uh, and the more that I learn about nature, the more subjects I see. But I think uh, the ability to see more deeply, so building my observation skills, I do think that that's something that I've significantly improved over time with a lot of practice. Uh, so things like uh, learning to observe a landscape from what's happening at the grandest level to really looking for little details. So when I'm hiking, I'm looking like what's happening in the sky, what's happening with the landscape. And then I look at every single rock that I pass by. I look at lots of lichen. It's like, is there interesting lichen? Is there some interesting set of striations on a rock? Um, I'll look at tree bark. Is there something interesting or unusual going on with the tree bark? If I'm passing a creek or a lake, is there something hap interesting happening on the surface of the lake? Like, are some interesting clouds reflecting in a way that creates some interesting ripples? Or are there interesting rocks um, under the surface of a creek? Uh, so it's that ability to take that initial instinct that I had, which was the interest in these kinds of subjects, and then I think really honing my ability to see more deeply. Uh, when I'm teaching photography, I always talk about how observations create opportunities. And the more that you, the more deeply you see, the more you observe within the natural world, the more you're going to see to photograph. Um, and I generally can go to a place and feel like there's more to photograph here than I could ever do in like in Death Valley. Like we were there for eight weeks. I had 20 times, 100 times more ideas 
in terms of photographic subjects than I could have ever worked with. And I think that's the benefit of really learning to see more deeply and building your observation skills. So even if people have an instinct for this kind of thing, I think it's really learning to see the landscape more deeply, figure out what you connect with, and then based on those connections, then pursuing actual very specific photographic opportunities. And then also, going back to what I was talking about earlier, the precision, uh, because when you're taking a photograph of lichen that is like three by three by four inches, um, if there's a little tiny imperfection or a little like speck of dirt or an empty space in a grand landscape, a little centimeter <laughs> empty space is not going to be a big deal. Um, in a, photo a photograph of a very small subject, it's going to be a much bigger deal. So also the observations, I think, improve your photography because you can see, oh, there's this tree bark. Like I was in Acadia in October. Acadia National Park in Maine, and all of the trees are covered in this crazy lichen along one particular trail, and it looks almost like little lightning strikes. Um, and I looked really carefully to find the tree that I felt had the most interesting set of lichen. So even though all the trees had the same type of lichen, looking for that one tree that had the nicest pattern without any distractions, um, and then specifically working with that, um, that that's another example of how observation can improve your photography because you're picking out the best subject in front of you, even if there are lots of trees with the same thing going on. That's that's a great point. I, I think there's a lesson to be learned for any photographer doing any kind of photography and just, you know, whatever your focus is, you know, paying attention to those smaller details and whether that's doing wildlife or birds, whatever it is, right? I think your 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 advice there could be taken to heart in any kind of photography. So that's that's kind of cool. I think I learned something tonight. <laughs> well, I, like if you think about just the core of what we do, uh, that if you start with composition, composition starts with observation because the things that you're observing, you can then use to create your composition. If you're observing light, you can see opportunities that you might not have noticed before if you start noticing the nuances of light. Um, if you're observing more subjects, you can see things that you might not have ever noticed before. So I think generally observation is probably like a fun, an absolutely fundamental skill when it comes to composition, light, and subject. And then for plant photography, you can apply it to like noticing little details in the background that might be un unappealing or same thing with bird photography. Like, do you, are you framing it in the best way that you can or would moving around a little bit, but a little bit more create a much more harmonious background? Like just those kinds of little details that once you start observing those things, I think those are that those details are what take good photography and turn it into exceptional photography mm -hmm. generally. I would agree. It takes it to another level for sure. Yep. That is definitely a, an important concept that, you know, in a very fast paced world. And I think when you talk about people only wanting to be out at, you know, 20 minutes at sunrise and 20 minutes at sunset, they do that. They rush through it. Oh, I've got to get the light. And next thing you know, they're not paying attention to some of those, you know, the, uh, you know, the border patrol, as some people say, and the backgrounds and, you know, those distracting bright areas of light and all kinds of different things. I want to go back uh, just briefly and, talk about your workflow you talked about you it sounds like you kind of take more of a a macro photographer's approach with some of these shots not all of them of course but where you're doing the focus stacking to get a little bit more depth is that i mean obviously that's something that you see beforehand the need for 
and obviously you're shooting these smaller scenes so your focal plane even at f8 is only going to be a few inches depending on your distance from the the subject so how often do you find yourself taking that approach is that something that you look at with every shot as just part of your workflow and part of your thought process at this point yeah i would say that well <laughs> because i got the canon r5 which does it all for like it creates the files for me um my hard drive is not thanking me because i'm creating so many more focus decks than i used to um so i i think it's like there are some circumstances where uh, creating a manual focus stack like two years ago would have been too much work. So I wouldn't have even done, I wouldn't have even, I would just would have moved on, done something else. Uh, now with my camera being able to create the stack for me, uh, I'm able to integrate a lot more complicated subjects into my workflow. So for example, if I have a subject, if I'm, if the subject is flat on the ground and then I'm pointing my lens at a very steep diagonal angle at that subject, that's something that previously I might've walked straight past, but with having a, a camera where you focus on the nearest thing and then it creates all the files for you, uh, it's something that I'm, I'm just thinking about a lot more uh, because it creates the opportunity to, uh, like it removes a technical barrier, I would say. Uh, so in some, I would say I'm always wondering, once I have framed up a composition, uh, I have a very free-flowing experiment, experimental process until I decide what I want to photograph, and then I turn much more towards precision. Um, so in that particular case, once I've turned towards precision, I framed up my composition and I start thinking about the technical challenges of the scene in front of me. I always ask myself, like, can I get this scene in a single frame? And I would say probably like 70% of what I do I can get in a single frame. Sometimes I will do one, like two or three extra photos just because it's so easy now. Uh, with my camera, with a software like Helicon Focus, it just adds like a three or four minutes to my workflow, but then significantly improves the results. Um, so I would say that it's, it's always on the front of my mind because it improves the technical results of my photographs. Um, but it's it it's speak mostly because I have a new tool in my bag that allows me to to do it much more quickly. Uh, because I'm I'm definitely the type of photographer that likes to keep moving. Um, it's very rare that I'll stay in the same spot and just like oh I'm going to wait for the light. I'm not a wait for the light kind of photographer. Um, I'm much more of a I want to wander around. I want to see what's over the next hill. I want to uh, experiment and explore. So. Uh, if something's te technically too complicated, I sometimes will just move on without hesitation. You know, one of the things we were, you mentioned earlier, I, I, I guess I'm, as you're talking, I keep thinking about it, about the, the lenses. And, and I don't usually get too wrapped up in gear because I think somebody can take an absolutely stunning photograph with, you know, the lowest level camera. It's really about what the photographer does and sees and how they can look at a scene and, and capture something out of that. But, you know, one of the things that I really like is I'm, you know, as I look through some of your photos, it's, it's hearing that you're using these long lenses because that's something that I do with, as a wildlife photographer, I kind of rely on my long lenses, but as I'm sitting there watching wildlife and you do, you, you have to sit and wait quite a bit. I'll take that long lens and start looking at, yeah, distant hills and trees and, and start thinking about patterns 
out of that. And it is, it's kind of fun to, to, to bring that closer to you, um, you know, what's over there and, and, and frame that out. Yeah, I, I think exactly the same way as what you just described of you don't need fancy gear to make exceptional photography, uh, but things like a, a 500 millimeter lens creates opportunities that you wouldn't necessarily have with like a 70 to 200. So um, I think that's, the, I look at it as another tool in my bag that extends my creative opportunities. Um, and I think that going back to what we were talking about earlier about being a happy, satisfied photographer is if you have some, for landscape photography, if you have some generally unattractive clouds in the sky, but they're beaming light on one particular grouping of trees and it's creating this little beautiful scene, zooming in on that and excluding everything else, you could still walk away with a fantastic photograph. So I think any landscape photographer can improve their satisfaction, diversify their portfolio, and I think in some ways connect more deeply with the landscape if they also think about including some more intimate landscapes in their portfolios as well. Because you really just need like some little dappled light on an interesting section of the landscape to make an interesting photograph uh, with a long lens. So it's like, but I, it goes back to too what I was saying about having the expansive view. If a grand landscape looks great, I'm going to photograph the grand landscape. If other things are interesting, like the intimate landscape, so telephoto of one section of a hillside, I might work on that. If that's not working out, I might find an interesting plant and spend some time with some plants or some lichen with my macro lens. Um, and for nature photography, I feel like there's opportunities at every single one of those points um, and that cultivating curiosity and um, just working with lots of different subjects and practicing with your lenses in different ways. It can really expand your photographic opportunities. Um, and I think just enjoy nature more. Like that it can be really frustrating. I had the experience of it being really frustrating to always be focused on grand landscapes and that great light just doesn't happen that often, even if you're getting out a lot. And I think that breeds a lot of dissatisfaction with landscape photographers, that if you can get past some of that and try some different things, um, that you can find a lot more satisfaction in photography. I think of how many times I've walked by in more humid environments, those, I don't even know what they're, what they're called, what the species is, but I, I always call them clamshell mushrooms that are kind of on the sides that grow off the sides of trees. And I walk by and I know that there's a shot there somewhere, but I never take the opportunity to find it, you know, and, and just <laughs> little things like that, that, Oh, well, next me. time you yeah. see one, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, I'll be busting out the tripod, getting ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm totally yeah. obsessed with mushrooms. So foraging right. them, photographing them, eating them. <laughs> so Sarah, you have a pretty varied, not only a varied um, portfolio, but you do a lot of different work with your, your business from a photography perspective. Um, I mean, everything from, you do a lot of teaching, you do a lot of writing, do you want to talk a little bit about how that's kind of evolved over the years? Yeah. Um, so I made the decision to uh, close down my consulting practice, which is what I used to do. I used to do uh, leadership and management consulting with nonprofits and foundations. And I decided to tell my last client in December uh, of 2019 that I was done and then had an entire slate of workshops and conference talks and other things 
ready to go in January of 2020. And we all know how that probably went uh, with things getting canceled. Pretty much that entire plan <laughs> of uh, workshops and speaking and other things disappeared overnight, like every other photographer that does that kind of thing. Um, so with that, I actually had a chance to rethink what I wanted my business to look like. Uh, so I've been doing educational products for probably eight or nine years now. So that's been eBooks that are focused more on location guiding. Um, I had a location guide to Iceland and one for Death Valley National Park, and then um, also educational materials. So eBooks and video tutorials. And that was how I was working part-time with a part-time business while doing my consulting practice. And then with the pandemic, I thought that I was going to shift almost entirely to teaching um, in person. And with the reflection opportunity that I had with just being in my house by myself for a long time, um, I decided that I don't actually think I wanna do in-person workshops. So I'm actually turning back to what I really enjoy the most, which is uh, writing eBooks and doing video tutorials and then occasionally speaking, because uh, I really do enjoy teaching in person. I just don't like the pressure of um, teaching workshops by myself. So I, I think I was going really broad thinking like I have to be doing a lot of things. I have to really diversify my business. And then I think the shock of the pandemic made me really think through what I want my life to look like and what I want my days to look like. So I want the autonomy and freedom that comes with having a more flexible schedule. And I think the idea of having 12 workshops a year where my schedule is my flexibility was getting really reduced. And I was talking to so many camera clubs that I had meetings constantly. And it's just like, this isn't actually why I'm doing this. Like I could be doing my consulting business and have my life look like this. Photography was supposed to look different. Um, so I think that was a really good chance to reflect and think like, what am I actually good at? And I think what I'm good at is writing and uh, doing uh, teaching, just, just generally teaching photography um, in an online type of context. Uh, the two things that I do really want to do, I want to turn one of our eBooks into a soft cover educational book, um, our Beyond the Ground Landscape, which is all about photographing the types of things we've been talking about. I'd like to turn that into a physical book. And then um, I think we're finally at the point where we can put together a full hardcover portfolio of Death Valley National Park. So those are the two other things that I want to do over the next couple of years. Uh, so sticking with the things that I really enjoy and that I feel like I'm good at and that allow me the flexibility that I want, occasionally speaking at conferences and then really working on those two book projects. Or, uh, so I think the pandemic was a gift <laughs> in, in the long run of like that I don't think I'd be happy with a schedule of 12 workshops a year, which was the direction I was headed. And instead, I think I'll be happier with this other more focused approach. I probably won't, my income won't be as great, but um, I think that I'll probably be, it'll be more sustainable. I'd say that. That and some of the things that you're talking about, you know, you could, you can sell a course into perpetuity. You can sell it forever. And where you, if you're doing the workshop, you get that one shot with those individuals and that's, that's it. So I think the the approach that you're taking does lend itself to more benefits over the long haul and then making improvements to that or adding version two to that just gives you another opportunity to recapture the, that clientele. So I like I like that model for sure. 
I think it's also just about self-reflection. Like I am an introvert. Like I can't keep a group of 12 people entertained for five days. Like my husband and I did a workshop in Iceland and it was um, like, it was very expensive for participants. It was uh, like high end accommodations and like, so high expectation. We had horrible weather. It was 11 days and it's like, I just don't have the personality to sustain a group for this long. And I think that that was a good lesson too, that like I'm suited to teaching in smaller bites. I think that that's where I'm at my best. So um, that I told, I have so much respect for people who can have huge workshop schedules and come home and feel energized. But like I did two private workshops, I taught a small group workshop and then I spoke at a conference in Death Valley and I just laid on the, the couch in our RV for like three days after I was done with those, those things all filled about three weeks. And I was just so, so done. I did not have a single mental bit of energy left after that experience. So for people who can do it and they're energized by it, great. Um, but workshops, I don't think are the right solution for me and necessarily for every other photographer uh, who wants to monetize their their photography in some way. Um, and I think that that's an important part of building a sustainable, a sustainable business is thinking about that. Like that if I would be so burned out in a year and a half, if I had that kind of workshop schedule. Um, and I think turning to this other thing that I'm thinking about doing, I think it like in a couple of years, I think I'll be, I'll feel happy and like I'm accomplishing what I want to accomplish instead of just so worn down. There was, I was talking to a friend of mine recently who has a really busy schedule i think he said he travels nine months out of the year total might have been even been 10 but you look at his workshop schedule and he's gone like three three and a half weeks every month i'm like there's there's just no way no way i could keep up that kind of pace but there are some people that have that personality <laughs> right i think i'd be more on the lay around try to recover and the things you know with the especially the long ones you know three or four days maybe 10 days, I think I would, that's too much socializing for me as well. Well, and it's even, you know, like the groups that I take out, I, I never <laughs> take out, I shouldn't say never. My goal is to to keep it to six, including me, for that exact reason, that it's any more than that. And it, it becomes a lot more corralling and it's not quite so intimate and you can't really get to know people. And, you know, to me, that's kind of, you want it to be fun. You want it to be casual while you still can teach them. Jason and I have been looking at this and it's, that's, that's one of the thoughts that goes into it for me is that. And I, you know, I like to shoot by myself as well, which doesn't really enter the equation because if you're doing a workshop, you're there to educate, not necessarily to shoot for yourself, but that's, that's definitely a strong consideration. And I think you're, you're right. It's something that people need to think through beforehand before they burn themselves completely out you know in the first two-week workshop that they do yeah i think it's like when for an organization like nampa that promotes or that helps people provide or provide some tools for helping people think about how they can create a profession out of nature photography um, like i think that one of the most important things that an organization like this can do is help people like think through some of these decisions like that it's not all about presenting nature photography as a profession as this idealized life because in in every way we're all super lucky that we're able to do this 
But the moment that you take this passion and you try to turn it into a business, uh, if you try to follow the path that a lot of other people have followed, it might not be what you're best at. It might not be what energizes you. Um, and that I, I personally feel like nature photography is emotionally taxing as it is because it's like it's mentally complicated to be out in the field photographing day after day after day and that then to have to also do the business side of things that that's just it's a lot to 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 think about and if you aren't aligning what you're good at and what your strengths are with your photography that I think it's just a recipe for dissatisfaction and frustration and possibly really a fi financially difficult situation um, so since I used to do uh, business planning and other things for nonprofits I think that I was able to come in to planning for my own business with thinking that, about that before I ever started developing a business plan. And then I developed a business plan around workshops because I thought I would enjoy it without really experiencing it that much. And now that I'd actually, I've actually experienced it, like it's just, I just am not, I think I do a really good job at it, but I just can't emotionally sustain it. Um, and that that's a, a really important piece of self-reflection when you're trying to build a business. Uh, so we're all good at different things and that there isn't just one path in this field. And with technology being so accessible, there are lots of different business opportunities now that don't involve in-person teaching. Well, and the pandemic has certainly taught us that it's okay to, to learn from home and it's okay to take Zoom classes. And you know, I think it's really changed a lot of people's perspectives and opened up a lot of opportunities. And if you're going to teach in-person workshops, you have a huge responsibility to the participants, I think. Um, that if I'm charging somebody $3,000 for their time for a couple of days of their precious vacation time, I feel like I have to over deliver. Um, and that that's a huge responsibility too. And I just, I think at the end of the day, I decided that I just couldn't do that by myself. So I'd rather do things that I'm good at, like writing eBooks and doing video tutorials and hopefully publishing some actual physical books. So Sarah, something that, um, I guess somewhat to change the conversation a little bit, that there was a blog post I had read of yours from a couple of years ago, but but it's still pretty applicable to today that talked about the rules of photography. So that, you know, and you mentioned earlier in our conversation about, you know, the rules are there, or I've always called them guidelines. They're there for a reason, because you have to teach people photography and some methods, but, but you really like to go beyond that. Do you want to talk a little bit about... Um, some of your favorite that you hate to hear? <laughs> um, I think if I wrote that blog post today, <laughs> it would actually be significantly more aggressive than it was. <laughs> um, because I just, I keep on encountering the same things over and over. And um, like, uh, so I was teaching at a conference in Death Valley and we, me and a friend, uh, Jennifer Renwick, we were doing a, a class on photographing patterns and repetition. So we were using some beautiful mud cracks as an example. And uh, we we kept on encouraging people to set their tripods up in kind of uh, ridiculous sorts of ways, like with two of the legs completely spread out really wide with a wide angle lens facing straight down and then having one the back leg pushed in more so that your camera was kind of cantilevered out over the scene so that your you could, your camera could face straight down on the patterns that we were photographing. So the tripods were all completely wacky. 
um, in terms of how they were set up, but it works perfectly for that type of photographic scene um, because then you don't have to do any focus stacking. You get everything in focus in a single frame. You can take advantage of that wide angle exaggeration that we were talking about. And there was so much resistance. We did this three separate times. We taught this same four hour session three separate times. And with almost every single group, there was so much resistance to setting their tripod up in a different way because like they heard that somewhere, it's like it's gotten ingrained in people that your tripod has to be as level as possible uh, and that that's, that's like how you do it. That's how you use a tripod. Um, so that's a really simple example of just where these thoughts get ingrained in people's minds. Um, and then when you suggest something different, it feels like, oh, that makes me really nervous. And I'm not sure, like my tripod's not going to work if it's not set up perfectly level. Well, it is going to work and it's going to open up all sorts of different photographic opportunities for you if you're, if you want to photograph the thing that we're talking about photographing. Um, so that was one thing that just got in a little bee in my bonnet over the last couple of weeks. Um, I can't stand composition rules. I think it's much more helpful to learn about the principles of visual design, um, like things like balance and symmetry and flow, uh, seeing things like lines, or subjects like as lines and shapes and other types of abstractions, and then using those ideas to put together a composition instead of things like you should never center your su subject. Like I center my subject all the time. But the rules tell you that if you have a centered subject, it's like the most boring thing you can ever do in photography. Well, I do it all the time and I like my photographs that result because I'm going for grace and elegance and calm and that's what centered compositions do. So like that's another thing, the rule of thirds, that you should never center your composition thing. Um, at least with landscape photographers, all the ridiculous things about best light, like that you shouldn't even take your camera out of the bag if it's not best light, that's just ridiculous. There's nothing such as good light or bad light. There are different opportunities that are presented by different kinds of light. And once you learn to work with those different kinds of light, you can see all sorts of photographic opportunities. So it's like all these, these conventions that are doing nothing but creating conformity. They're, enc they're encouraging conformity. They're encouraging standard practices. Well, this is a field that is based on creativity. So let's get all of those stupid standard practices out and think about like what drives me to photograph nature and what do I like in terms of composition. And I'm not saying this is what beginners should do. Like your first year with a camera, you probably need a little bit more structure than this. But like if you're, if you're teaching some of these things as a professional photographer, I think that we're doing people a disservice by encouraging conformity instead of ex encouraging seeing things more broadly and in a more expansive way, encouraging experimentation, experience, encouraging personal expression, um, that there, the conventions of nature photography are really limiting. And I think getting rid of those conventions can help people create a much more interesting and personal portfolio of work. So that's all, all that is to say that blog post would not be quite as uh, friendly and light touch, lighthearted as it might be today if I were to rewrite it. Cause I'm just getting like, I'm, <laughs> I get a little bit more amped up about this every time um, I teach a group of photographers in the field. Cause I, it's, it's frustrating to then work with people and then ha like, I've had a few people recently tell me like, some of the ideas that you've taught me have made me feel free for the first time in my photographic practice. Like I now feel like I can experiment a lot more, that I can try new things with light and that I can 
try different things with my composition, that that's super exciting that people are trying something new instead of just feeling like, oh, I can only photograph during the golden hour. I can only place my subject at the rule of thirds. Like all of those things like aren't encouraging creativity and in a creative field, I think we're doing people a disservice by being so obsessed with conventions. So I can, I can end my little rant there. <laughs> and if, if you guys have anything to weigh in on about, we could have a conversation about it. I think that might be, that might be the pro tip of the year right there so far. I know it's, it's early in 2022, but that might be the pro tip of the year. Get it, get the rules out of your head, use them as guidelines, but photography is a creative art. Be creative. I think of Steve Mathis. Uh, he's a Jackson, Wyoming photographer. He has taken those little novelty lenses, those lens babies. Have you guys seen those? Most people use them for portraits, but Steve's taken them out with wildlife and he's just getting some crazy, crazy compositions, some crazy results uh, that you'd never be able to get with a conventional lens, you know, and, and I think just thinking outside the box like that is what separates each of us from the rest of the crowd. And I think you're spot on. I have nothing further to say. My boyfriend's always telling me, like, if I'm not back by, you know, I don't know, nine, nine thirty, he's like, "What are you doing?" He'll you know, text me, "What are you doing now?" It's it's past golden hours. I'm like, "Really? Come on, think outside the box here." Well, it's like like I was talking about with Death Valley National Park that we had clear skies for weeks, 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 like endless clear skies. Well, in that type of landscape or the American Southwest in general, if you arrive really early, like when your exposures are still like a minute or 30 seconds and you stay really, really late. So you arrive and you start photographing at twilight. There is a beautiful glow about the landscape. And if you just arrive to photograph the best color in the sky, you miss that incredible glow. So uh, like sand dunes in particular can go from if you arrive early in the morning, they can go from looking silvery to looking blue to purple to pink to golden to then light and shadows. Those are there are photographic opportunities everywhere from 45 minutes before the sun rises to an hour and a half after, and even longer if you want to do black and white. Um, so there are, there are tremendous opportunities to work with a wide angle lens, to work with a telephoto lens, try all different kinds of light and walk away from three hours on the dunes with potentially four or five really good, totally different photographs. So that's an example of where things, saying things like the golden hour that you should, and it's not even an hour in practice, it's more like 10 minutes before sunrise um, is what the golden hour is for landscape photography generally. Like you're missing all of those other beautiful opportunities of different kinds of light. So that's why I go back to like, we're doing people a disservice by teaching them that there is best light instead of that there are all different kinds of light and you can work with all those different kinds of light and get completely different results. Um, so that's why when I talk about the rules being so frustrating um, is that it's, we are confining people instead of liberating them. And I think as teachers, we should be encouraging creativity and encouraging experimentation. Um, so clearly I have a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of passion around this topic. I'm just saying it shines through and for good reason. I, I absolutely 100% agree. We talk about it from time to time, but yeah, the rules are there as guidelines, like Don said, right? And in my opinion, they're there meant to be broken. I mean, I, and matter of fact, I think it's fun to challenge the rules and say, okay, well, 
this is this isn't supposed to work but when i do it this way and crop it this way or, or compose it this way i feel like it works for me you know and it may not work for other people but some people it does work for and that's the whole point right so anyways i i love it i love your passion behind it <laughs> well i think your point jason about it works for me like saying that it works for me that's the key part is like what why are you photographing and looking into your own motivations your own personal visual aesthetics really tuning into those things can help make your photography so much more personal and therefore I think more unique and more interesting. So like I said before around the centered compositions thing, my goal with my photography is calming, grace, elegance, harmony. Um, so things like a centered composition, that promotes all of those things. So to hear or to read in a photography book, oh, you should never center your subject. It creates boring, static photographs. Well, it also can create harmonious, calming photographs. And that's what my motivation is. So like tuning into that for myself, I think was been really important. So I think that point that you made about, like if it works for me, that's what's important. And I think that's what helps people's work stand out. Has there ever been, and I'm gonna put you on the spot to think a little bit here. Has there ever been a situation where you've tried something completely way out of, like you were talking about with the tripods, just something completely, really different and you still look back at the photo that you captured from that and go I am so glad that I tried that I'm so glad that I didn't let the rules stick in my head um, I think my entire portfolio of plant photography would be an example of that uh, like I have all sorts of dead plants in my photographic portfolio um, I have things like plants that are dormant that like perennials that have shed their flowers yet they still have golden or colorful stalks um, and I'm focusing like most plant photography advice is like or macro photography advice is like focus on the thing closest to you or you have to have everything in focus well what happens if you focus like well into your subject and there's a bunch of stuff out of focus that totally blurs it and then you just have one little tiny thing in focus um, so I'd say that that's like all that experimentation with plants of where I'm photographing things that 99.9% .9 of photographers would walk by without a second look. Um, and they're some of my favorite photographs. Uh, I'd say that's like that kind of experimentation is probably the place where it shines through most in my photographic portfolio. Because I, like most of my small scenes of landscapes, I think I do that well, but that's not necessarily unique to me. I think my plant photography portfolio actually is pretty unique. Um, so like just trying, like photographing things, subjects that most people haven't photographed, um, framing them in ways that might be different, focusing in totally different ways, processing in different ways, like very light, bright pastel that I feel like my plant photography has a pretty distinct look to it for all of those reasons yeah you have one photo it's actually on your home page that where you can tell it's a, you know a lot of branches and leaves of fall colors and you've actually photographed through the initial front branches you know it's like a really it looks like a real shallow depth of field or maybe a really long lens but you've picked up like the, the colors closer to the trunk of the tree and it's it it's that kind. It's that kind of concept that you know, you're looking at something different than what initially would catch somebody's eye. Yeah, or like I, I use my hundred to five hundred lens all the time to photograph plants. So that's another thing that, like, I use a five hundred millimeter lens, like it's a macro lens, because the new Canon hundred to five hundred 
uh, RF lens focuses really close to things. So uh, like I can use it essentially like a macro lens and get completely different types of compression and other things that just make my photography look a little bit different because I'm using tools in a way that's different than how, how they're traditionally used. You know, as I look through your portfolio, I've seen some things that I've, I've tried a couple of times and I don't do a ton of it, but I think it was actually out in Death Valley where, um, you know, with cactus, you, because you get those very sharp points, but then you get the real shallow depth of field and it softens everything else. So it gets this kind of juxtaposition within the one plant. Yeah, that's also a theme in my work is um, I photograph a lot of desert plants. And one of the reasons I use shallow depth of field is because it, I think people think of cactus and succulents and other types of desert, desert plants as like aggressive and like, oh, I, w I don't want to get anywhere near that when they're actually beautiful. Like they're so colorful. They have beautiful patterns and repetition, uh, really intricate details. So I like taking a plant that most people are like, I don't want to get anywhere near and presenting it as a beautiful subject. So like, that softness, the soft colors, the soft focus uh, is taking a perception and flipping it with desert plants. So that's one of the themes in my, my plant photography too. There probably are some people that probably shouldn't be too close to desert plants, but. Um... Yeah, like it, the teddy bear choya, stay away from the, like the ones that, that drop off things and then they latch onto you, <laughs> like stay far, far away from those. But, and be very careful where you're sitting and kneeling. Um, but so yes, for safety purposes, <laughs> don't get too close, but um, I still think they're a very worthy uh, subject for photography, as long as you're safe and, and smart. Yeah, there's just, you know, that's, so I I think you know that I've, I've done a lot of traveling in an RV as well. And, you know, that's something that I learned over the years from traveling is that every place has something, every place has some sort of beauty and you really have to look at the details, not just the grand, like grand landscape, but the details, different times of day, different seasons. You don't have to be there at the best season of the, you know, what, what the group as a whole, you know, whatever that group may be determines is the best season. There really are so many opportunities out there, but you do have to just kind of give it a little bit of time. Traveling our RV, which we got in uh, 2014, has completely transformed the way I photograph. I used to go, I was definitely a chase the light type of landscape photographer where uh, we'd be looking at weather forecasts, we'd drive really far with, with the prospect of good good light and great weather, uh, whatever that means. Um, go, 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 moving really quickly. And then we got our RV and now we do things like we stay in Zion National Park for three or four weeks and we go to Death Valley for eight weeks. And we are fortunate because my job as a nature photographer is fully remote. And then my husband's job as a software engineer is also fully remote. So we are very lucky to have that flexibility. Um, but now with the pandemic and people's jobs shifting, um, I think it's, it's more and more possible for nature photographers to do this uh, because they, even if you have a job, you might be able to take, to spend a little bit more time in places than you might have before. Uh, you, I feel like my photography in, I've essentially focused on three places or four, uh, the Pacific Northwest with a focus on Olympic National Park, um, 
Zion National Park, Death Valley, and then southwestern Colorado. So those have been the, the four places that I've now started returning to over and over and over. And I feel like my photography has significantly improved because I've been able to spend more time um, and get to know these places a lot more, hike a lot more, see more. And once I've been able to see more, I've like going back to the observation conversation, seeing a lot more details and nuances in the landscape, which has then helped create photographic opportunities. So um, our, I'd say getting our Airstream trailer has probably been the number one most important thing to shifting my photography because I feel like I'm now doing the type of photography that really speaks to me and it's not, <laughs> it's not a fast paced pursuit. Um, so being able to slow down and spend more time in a place has been really helpful. I agree with you there. I miss being on the road. It's probably refreshing too, right? I think of so many times when I'm out in the field, I do kind yeah. of feel rushed or like I've got to get some amount of in my own mind, you know, images so that I feel like I've been productive or something and I've got a very short time frame or, you know, and that's that, you know, sometimes that absolutely takes some of the fun out of it. So, yeah, I, I Every time you talk, I learn something new. So I'm taking lots of notes tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, our V life isn't easy. I will definitely say that. Like we had, we've had some complications for sure. Um, like our on our way home from Death Valley last uh, last January, like our transmission died, <laughs> and we ended up spending a week and a half in a little tiny town in Utah while it got fixed. Um, We've had our like major plumbing problems, um, but my husband needs good internet and we, like he was sitting outside one of the restaurants in Death Valley every day to do his Zoom calls for work um, in very cold weather and windy conditions. So it's definitely not like given for anybody who has to work, it's certainly not an idealized life, but for photography, I think those discomforts and those ups and downs are well worth it because even if you can go from spending two or three days in a place to maybe spending like a week and a half in a place, um, that it's just a, like that immersion for, at least for me has totally transformed my photography. Agreed. Another good pro tip. We, we used to talk a lot about giving yourself 10 days at a location because you, by about day six, now you've got the, the flow and you've kind of got the timing of how everything's going to happen. And, and where you want to be at a certain time and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, that can, that works for wildlife photography as well as uh, landscape and even, you know, the micro landscapes that you do. Um, but you, you know, you've got some great grand landscape work as well, but the, the vision for the smaller things, it's identifying those and knowing where you want to go back to, or, or maybe trying something that's a little bit different where if you were just kind of hit and run, you wouldn't have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, for sure. Like the, I think like a lot of the stuff that I did in Death Valley when we first got there, uh, an area that we keep on going back to when it floods, it leaves these beautiful, uh, very, very colorful mud ripples. So it's that kind of example of like, we would have never walked out to this particular area five years ago if we hadn't had extended an extended period of time in the park. And now it's become one of our favorite places for photography because now we know the exact conditions that produce this particularly interesting set of conditions. So it was like having the time to just randomly walk out from the highway and see what 
we, what might be out in this particular area, then it's time to go back a few different times, extensively explore the area, and then learn about what conditions produce this particular set of opportunities and then being there to go back. Uh, so like this is, if 10 years ago, I would be looking at weather forecasts and being like, okay, we have clear skies, we're going to Zion, or we have clear skies, we're headed to the coast. Like now it's like, well, we're here, we're camped for a couple of weeks, we're gonna make the most of it. Uh, that's kind of how I felt like, oh, I was missing out. But now that I've been doing it for a while, that example that I gave about the, like learning about a place more and then having the time to go back, it's, it's just been so much fun. It's, for me, it's a much more enjoyable and, and pleasant way to photograph rather than just always being driven by weather forecasts that half the time don't pan out in the first place. Have you seen, I know this is something, we have a, a large RV and we, we run into a lot of problems as, especially since the pandemic of finding space because there are so many people out have what's been your experience and how that's changed, how you, you make your travel plans. Yeah, it's hard because we're not planners. So uh, like we forgot that we had reservations in Yellowstone in August uh, because we made them like a year ago. <laughs> so it's that kind of situation where um, like, we're just trying to think ahead more one of the other things that we've been doing is just finding state parks that are on the fringes of interesting places and then going to state parks instead um, and seeing like, and we found them interesting things. Like we're going to a state park in Texas in April and I'm totally looking forward to a completely different landscape than I've ever photographed. Um, and it was a lot easier to find a spot in a state park. Um, and then there are places like Death Valley that we're so fortunate. And I, and I don't like to say this because I don't want more people to go there and change the situation. But in Death Valley, they have enough camping where you can always just show up. And even with a big RV, like there will always be a space for you. Um, so it's like, that's one of the reasons we go back to Death Valley a lot. Um, but, but with Zion National Park, that's a place where five years ago, we would be able to just show up in the fall, stay for two weeks without having a reservation. And now, now we're staying at private campgrounds outside the park. So it's, it's a huge challenge. It's frustrating, but on the other hand, it's like one of the, the thing, like I love nature. I want other people to benefit from, from nature as well. So I don't feel like I can, I'm trying not to be too much of like, oh, I can't stand that people want to do the exact same thing that I love. Um, so trying to be, um, just trying to be more planning oriented and flexible and try some new locations, um, just generally. Those are the, some things that we've been doing, even though it is super frustrating. It was nice five years ago to be able to go to pretty much anywhere except for Yosemite Valley and be able to get a space. And that's just not the case anymore. Yeah, that's definitely the same thing that we've experienced. And um I'm a little bit more of a planner. I kind of like to mix it up. I like to have some plans so that I know I have some stability within a trip and then mix it up with some, some new things. Whereas my, my partner, he's just no, no, no planning. He's like, well, let's go here. And I'm like, yeah, you had to plan that six months ago. So maybe next year, <laughs> but it is, it's getting, it's definitely getting harder. It's, um, yeah. I mean, I'm glad people are out there enjoying nature and learning more about nature and, you know, because the more people experience it, the more that we they can, they'll learn the appreciation for it, and you know it's important for conservation. But I agree with you that it's don't mind my AirPods dropping dropping yeah. out. Um, 
yeah it definitely has <laughs> um has its challenges um and i just generally feel like like with planning that I just have to accept it. So if, if you're somebody who's thinking about RV travel and you're reading blogs from a couple of years ago, just know that that's not the situation anymore. You have to have plans. You have to be thinking ahead of time. Um, you can't just roll into these campgrounds like you might've been able to pretty much anywhere in the American West, um, pretty much from like early spring to early fall or like in some of the desert places, those times would be flipped. But, um, it, you absolutely have to be more planning oriented. It's just kind of the nature of, of RV travel right now. But at least for us, the pros are still outweighing the cons. And at least for the last two RV trips we've done, so we were in Zion National Park in the fall, and then we were in Death Valley just recently. We just got home from that trip. There were less people than there were a year ago. So it's possible that with the pandemic, think places with the pandemic easing, places will still be crowded, but it won't be like 2021. I just looked at the, the numbers um, from 2021 for the National Park Service, and I noticed that Great Smoky Mountains went up 2 million visitors from last year, and I, or from 2020, which I guess makes sense. I mean, some places 2020 was, was tough, um, but yeah, 2 million is a huge jump. So, Sir, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to be on with us. We there's so much you can learn just from, uh, and I, I mean, this is the, in the literal sense, typically we say it in the figuratively, but having a different perspective on photography, on the literal sense with, with what you're doing with these smaller landscapes. I think, you know, some of the things that we've talked about tonight should resonate with all of us, because I guarantee you, we've all passed by something that somebody would be happy to hang on their wall or to be able to experience. And, and so it does give me a little bit of motivation to slow down a little bit as I'm out there and, and uh, look at more than just the wildlife. <laughs> yeah. Well, th that's awesome to hear. <laughs> if you take anything that you really like, let me know. <laughs> yeah, send me exactly. The, send me the result. I'd love yeah, to see it. I've tried the, I've got a couple yeah, when that you I've find tried, the mushroom I know that you I'm were not mentioning earlier. Could be, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess one last question for you. So, um, you know, your involvement with Nampa over the years, what is, what has been some of the, the things that you have found have been pretty beneficial for you? Um, I think the, the number one most tangible thing that has been beneficial with Nampa. Um, so I'll do tangible and then other, uh, like more interpersonal. So the tangible thing is the insurance, like just having access to insurance that is designed for nature photographers. Like when I can say something like, oh, my lens rolled down the hill into a waterfall and it's filled with silt. Um, I need to either have it repaired or it's totally totaled. And I call an insurance agent and she's like, oh, totally understand. Um, and like, I'm not gonna ask any questions I'm, I'm just going to believe you that that's what happened because that's something that she hears about on a regular basis. Uh, like that's a huge peace of mind, especially since my husband and I are both nature photographers and um, like the amount of gear that we have, like it's just the peace of mind of having really good gear insurance is fantastic. So that I think is the most practical piece of um, the best practical piece of being associated with NAMPA. And then I think just feeling like you're part of a community that if you're an individual photographer who's running your own business and 
you're sitting by your, like the last two years, just sitting by yourself, working away behind a computer, or um, like we've talked about, I think probably all of us just generally enjoy sometimes just being by ourselves out in nature, that it can be a really solitary pursuit. And sometimes that's great. Like I really like being outside by myself, but it can also be in terms of a profession really lonely. So having a place to network with people, know that there are like-minded people in the community, um, that it's a point of connection. Uh, like somebody who is affiliated with NAMPO was one of the camp hosts uh, at one of the campgrounds in Death Valley. And I met a couple of people who were like, oh, did you meet the NAMPO camp or the camp host in Death Valley? She's a member of NAMPO. So it's just like an instant point of connection that you have with people. Um, so I think that just like that feeling like you're part of a community, having a network, um, like the point of connection, that all of that is a huge benefit of being part of a professional association like this. Oh, wonderful. It's nice to hear that. So how can people find your work, Sarah? Uh, the best place to find me is on my website, which is smallscenes.com. Um, and I share that URL with my husband, Ron Coscarosa, who is also a nature photographer. Um, who has very similar interests to me. So um, we share our website for that reason. And then uh, the place I'm most active is Twitter. And I can never remember my, my handle. I think it's Sarah Marino Photo or S Marino Photo. Um, and then I also have an Instagram portfolio, both the color one and a black and white one. Um, but I'm just not a huge fan of Facebook. <laughs> so um, I ha I'm not using Facebook or Instagram as much as previ I previously was. So the best place to find me is my website and then my newsletter, which is where I update people with new photos and information about our travels and new educational products and that kind of thing. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us tonight and enlightening us to thinking outside of the box. So I hope, I'm sure people have been inspired to, to look at things differently when they were outside. Um, so thank you very much for joining us and thank you everybody for listening to another episode of the nature photographer podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the wild and exposed podcast to get not only this podcast, but as well as all of their episodes too. So we will see you next month.